there's one thing that I could change about sport um, that I that would solve so much of the sexual abuse that happens. It is a cultural change so that everybody knows that coaches shall not have romantic and sexual relationships with the athletes they coach, regardless of age or consent. So that you, Nicole, are every bit as protected as that 10-year-old. Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoone. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, it is me. I am back for another incredible conversation, a very long one, as you can see. Um, and it's going to be even longer because I got to share some stuff in this intro. I am currently in the final days of selling skirt sports products with me at the helm. It has been 15 years, it has been an insane career. I can't wait to do an episode with our president, who's part of the business for 14 of the 15 years, and just rehash all the craziness, all the learning curves, all the major fails, all the cool surprises. But what it's all sort of culminating with, it's all coming to a head right now, literally like I'm on our website refreshing every few minutes and I'm like, oh my gosh. 90 units left. Oh my gosh, 88 units left. Like we are finishing it out. The finish line, which is what I symbolically created when I launched this final sale and announced we were closing our doors on May 1st, that finish line. Like I thought it would be there. I mentioned this finish line, but now it's actually here. You know, when you're in a race and you're just like, you know, in the back of your mind, there's going to be this amazing thing at the end and you're going to get there at some point, but you got to go through all kinds of pain and suffering and, and spitting and pooping and <laughs> whatever you do in a race <laughs> to get there. And, um, yeah, it's here. Like literally on Sunday, we plan to have our last product sold and I think we will. Wow. And so it's a heavy time. It's an exciting time. It's a time of total confusion. There are days that I just walk around feeling this like underlying vibration of emotion and I can't even tell you what those emotions are. I'm just very like uncertain. But what's happening at the end here is that despite the uncertainty, I'm starting to I'm starting to grab on to the things that are positive and that are like sort of pushing me the final few yards or meters, depending on where you live in the world. <laughs> and uh, it's right here in front of my fingers, you know. People have been asking me for a long time, what's next? What are you going to do next? I always find this question, like it's the obvious question, right? Of course you want to know what somebody's going to do next. Um, I would be asking the same question, but I don't have an answer. I literally don't know. 
literally <laughs> like Rob Lowe from Parks and Rec and his podcast. But um, I literally don't know what I am going to do next. But I do know this. Skirt Sports is going to live on. And I am so, so close to being able to make an incredible feel-good announcement. But I'm not quite there. You got to wait like another week. You got to wait until the next episode. Um, But it's going to happen. Skirt Sports is not going to go away. It's just that I will no longer be the person leading the ship. I'll be supporting the ship. And I'm really excited for that. A lot of people have trouble peeling off and moving away, moving out of um, positions of leadership. And I, I will continue to lead and, and do other things in my life, but it is time for me to stop leading this ship <laughs> and to pass the skirt torch to somebody else. So that's a really crazy and fun um, thing for you guys to be thinking about is that I don't know what I'm going to do next, but what I'm doing is taking this beautiful movement, this kind of baby, if you will, who's grown up into a child and going off to college, and I'm, uh, I'm, giving, her, I'm giving her a new mentor, a new guide, uh, some other positive person to help bring her and along and help her grow in this world. So that is what I'm focused on right now. Not necessarily what I'm doing next, but making sure that Skirt Sports has a beautiful new home. So stay tuned for probably next week's episode. I am not kidding you. Today, you are in for the greatest conversation. I am so grateful that um, years ago, I reached out to today's guest. Her name is Nancy Hogshead Makar. And when I was growing up, Nancy Hogshead, she was probably on a poster on my wall. I'm not kidding. She was one of my swimming heroes. Um, she, her, she really rose and shine, um, shown during the year that we boycotted the Olympics in 1980, um, and went through all kinds of crazy things during these formative years of her life, including sexual assault, including, um, you know, recovering from the devastation of not being able to go win all the gold medals at the Olympic Games because of something out of your control, Um, including growing up in the public eye as one of America's athletic sweethearts. And she came out in 1984 and rose to the surface and became the most decorated athlete at the Olympic Games. She's just she's just such a cool person, and so I've always, she's been in the back of my mind forever. Just like like all of those heroes and people we have on posters in our wall when we're in junior high and high school. Um, she went on to become a civil rights attorney. She's doing good work in the world. And um, I reached out to her because I was just sort of researching her and I saw that she, this was 2011, 
I was pregnant with Wilder. I, being the curious person I am, decided that I would try to plan for the birth as best I could by interviewing all of these athletes who had had babies a little bit later in life. And so I found that she had um, had twins when she was 43. And so I called her and I was like, I need to know your story. We talk about it today. It's so funny. I was dying laughing. Um, man, she's tough. But uh, we've stayed in touch ever since. And I'm just so grateful for her because she is a strong person. She is a strong woman. And she she is championing people who need her strength and people who, who we need to hear their voices be amplified. Um, Nancy, she can't stand inequality. She is out there to make the world a better place. And after today's interview, I am absolutely certain that you will want to jump on the bandwagon and help support the things she's doing in this world. All right, you guys, on that note... Let's uh, let's bring Nancy on the show. Awesome. Well, Nancy, do you feel like you're ready to rumble? You ready to shake up the world? I love it. Woo! Okay. Um, I'm just so excited to uh, finally connect with you on the podcast. I feel you're you're going to have to forgive me because I feel like we're super good friends, like we have been forever. But. Maybe that's just on my side because I've been following you since I was a freaking kid swimmer and you were one of my heroes. So Aww. thank you so much for taking the time with me today. It's going to be really fun to share your journey. Yay. Oh, no, no, and it's not one way. I mean, ever since um, this probably was a small thing for you, but it was a big thing for me. You gave me this huge pile of uh, skirt sport clothes. And even though I remember I was horseback riding and a branch caught on the, on the pocket and it totally ripped. And there was a part of me that was like, Oh, you know, you're not going to wear that again, please. I just put a safety pin in it. I didn't sew it. And I wear it all the time. Like I still wear those, the skirts and the long pants with has like a skirt. I still, you gave those to me at least six years ago. And it's crazy how I still wear them all the time. You know, that's one of the problems with our brand. And as you know, we talked about this a little bit before. Um, I've been 15 years in the making of this amazing company and community, and we are literally at the very final hour of like crossing our own finish line here and, and ending a big chapter of my life. But one of the problems is that the products were too good. Like, People are still wearing stuff from 2005. I mean, you know, there are certain companies who purposely create products that are going to fall apart after about six months to a year because then people have to buy more, but I never took that approach. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was great stuff. And it was also very flattering. So it was like flat, it was flattering and functional at the same time. So no, I, and every time I put it on, I always thought of you. You know, as a strong woman and a woman who grew up being an athlete and like just kicking ass all over the world, that means a lot to me. And I know you understand the power of adding a little bit of that flair. It can like completely change your mindset on race day or even for a workout. It gives you an edge. Absolutely. A hundred percent. 
Yeah. yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about why you were one of my childhood heroes. <laughs> so, you know, I was a kid swimmer. I grew up in Chicago um, competitively swimming and I ended up making the 88 Olympics, which was or not Olympics, Olympic trials, which if I was in the Olympics in 88, you would have known me back then. Um, so I was just like drooling over watching like Janet and Matt Biondi and the, you know, cool down pools and all that. And you were sort of on more of the tail end, like you had become one of the best swimmers in the world when you were 14 years old. So, and that was maybe a decade before me. So let's talk a little bit about your upbringing and how you came to be such a superstar at such a young sure. age. Sure. And can I say that when you were saying you were looking up to Matt Biondi and Janet Evans, like I did too. Like even like after I finished, even today, like when I, I, I got to meet Simone Manuel and Katie Ledecky at the Stanford swimming pool and I still look up to them and admire them when they were swimming. Like to them, it was like a Tuesday practice. To me, it was like art that was, and I like, my jaw was on the ground. They're the Stanford coach, nicest guy in the world. Um, you know, they're to them, it's right. But to me, it was just so moving just how good, good they were and how amazing it is to be around people who are in, in the pursuit of something great, number one. And, um, you know, like it's in their world. So they don't really appreciate it the way that you do. I think when, when you're out of it, just a touch, but anyway, so, so I started swimming, um, you know, I was seven and my parents just bought a boat. I don't know about you, but they just wanted to drown proof us kids. Uh, it was no great beginnings, but I, I was crazy lucky in a number of ways. One of which was my first ever coach was Eddie Reese. It, like Who, the Eddie Reese. Texas? Right. Was he the yes. Texas? Yes. Texas, University of Texas. So he's now, you know, like, I don't know, 10 time NCAA champion, uh, probably had 50, 60 Olympians, probably, right? But at the time, he was 22 years old. He was, uh, you know, just a graduate assistant working for University of Florida's team. Uh, I was at Gainesville Golf and Country Club, and he was coaching there. So, I mean, how lucky that I got a coach. And uh, if you know anything about Eddie, he's hilarious. And he brings a spirit of fun. And you and I are in sports that are sort of not known for being fun. <laughs> well, we had our fun after we got out of the pool. Swimmers <laughs> were notorious for having too much fun out of the pool. <laughs> but in the pool, I mean, you can't really be having a whole lot of fun. You're, you're crushing your intervals, you know? Right. Right. But, he, but Eddie was funny. And Eddie made it fun. And... Um, and I was really grateful that, um, so when I was 10 years old, my mom said to Eddie, Hey, look, Nancy's really, really close to the national age group record here. I bet if you push her, I bet she could get that record. And he told her, if I push her, she is going to quit swimming and she will not continue on. And like he, he, this is way before anybody else was doing this kind of thing was thinking about the trajectory of my athletic career as not being something that was tethered to a 10 year old national record. Right. Um, I, you know, honestly, I have to say, I think that takes a lot of maturity and restraint. Yeah. You no, know, because oh, absolutely. Because he could have been like the coach, right. At age 20, I think at the time he's probably 24 years old. Right. And he, 
he, he didn't push me. I didn't get the record. I did stay in swimming and right. And, and kept on going, but it, it is inappropriate for uh, 10, 12 year olds to be training at a, at a high, high level. Um, it's a, I, I don't know what kind of theories that you have for your daughter about when to get her involved and how much and whatnot, but I, I would, uh, you know, I, I'm on the, the advisory board for uh, the Aspen Institute Sport and Society, and their whole thing is kids are dropping out of sports. And why? Because the coach is very invested in having like the best six-year-olds or 10-year-olds in the country and how that kills, like even very talented kids aren't having their careers nurtured. And number so number one, it hurts them. But even just like your average kid that just, you know, you want them to be in shape and you want them to enjoy and have a good sense of their body and, and feel good about living inside their own body. It, it, we're, we're shortchanging both groups. Um, Let's pause. Let's go down this rabbit hole for a minute because I think sure. it's really important. Yeah. Um, so you're now a mom with three kids who are, right. your twins are, are they 14? Yeah, they're about to be 15. Are you ready? Tomorrow. <gasps> oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, so they're going to be driving tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, because they can do like a learner's permit thing? Permit, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, geez, driving 15, the age of COVID, like girls, hormones. This is going to be, this has got to be a crazy time for you. <laughs> um, and then you have a son who's older, right? Yeah, so he's he's 19 and he's uh, just starting his sophomore year in college. Yes, okay, and I have an eight-year-old girl and- Actually, this could be a really fun second rabbit hole to go down. When I first reached out to you, I swear it's because I was interviewing you about your birth story because I was like literally obsessed with learning more <laughs> about people's births because it felt like the only thing I could possibly try to plan or like at least understand going into having a baby. <laughs> and your birth story was yeah. insane. Insane. Um, yeah. Let's just talk about it. We got to, I've hit on it. Okay. Let's do it. I, I had this blog I called Belly Tales. And right. I was like, I, I loved your belly tales, right? Belly tales. Isn't that cool? And I was like, yeah. I got to find other athletes who, you know, have their own experiences so I could know all the different ways that this could possibly go. And of all the people I interviewed, um, yours was by far the most insane <laughs> and definitely like set the bar high on like, yeah. I definitely don't think mine can go further than that. <laughs> <laughs> so let's, um, let's talk about it. Yeah, no, no. So my husband gives me a hard time because if you tell me like, oh, like there's a record to be broken. He's like, no, 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 don't tell her. Don't tell her. Shh, hush, hush, hush. Right. Because, You're going to break like, that record. Like, really? I can break the record. I mean, it's, it is bananas how I am like such like the little like jackrabbit ready to go as soon as somebody says like, and nobody else. Yeah. Or, and that's right? why it was good that Eddie Reese didn't like share that right. with you at 10 because you were bound right. to nurture that like goal getting mindset at some point in your life. So boom. So yeah. did you break a record here? No, I no. So I didn't break a record then. So oh, oh, did I break no, a record with, with my pregnancy? Yeah, with your pregnancy. Oh yeah, of course. Yes, I said in the blog that uh, I broke the record for having the largest belly of. Um, so I had I gave birth to twins, and one was eight pounds, one was seven pounds, and that's the lot. That's the biggest 
amount of babies or so this this practice it was a very high risk practice like they've they've had you know five babies six babies right quintuplets and whatnot but they didn't add up to 15 pounds of baby right so even like the octomom you know those were like she had eight babies but most of them were like around the one pound right so i had more baby and you know huge placentas and then i had a condition called polyhyd polyhydrocephalus or polyhydrosis, something like that, which means too much water around the babies. So um, they don't know why it happens sometimes, but you know, most babies, like when you do the little ultrasound, you can see like little squish faces and no, no, no. My babies were swimming around in there. Like you could see their hair floating around in there, right? So I have these two huge babies in these enormous sacks of water. Um, there was a gallon of water around Millicent alone. <laughs> Um, Wait, a gallon? A gallon, right? Put a <laughs> gallon of water just next to your belly and you can see just and, how. And you were, um, you weren't young. Oh, no. Oh, oh, I got pregnant when I was 42 and I didn't have them until I was 43. Yes. No, it was, I went through 11 IVFs. Again, I'm quite sure that's another record. Wait, 11? Um, that's like, 11. these were like million dollar babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they were not so, cheap for, for a while so so no so now we've caught up but there for a while like we, we didn't we hadn't put as much money into their college fund it was like i got you here i got you into the world <laughs> yeah, no we, we um yeah no i and 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 sort of in the in the world of um sort of learning about uh, uh emotional intelligence after like, I don't know, maybe number three, I was like, well, I guess I'm just only going to have a son and we're going to love our son and maybe we'll adopt, but right. But uh, this is it. And it was like the desire to have my twins. I would be in prayer and I would, the girls would just be around my shoulders. They'd be right around here. And, um, and, and I, and like, it was like a ball that kind of would bounce back into my hand. Like, yep, I'm ready to go. But if you had told me at the end, like, you know, you're going to go through this 11 times. I just would have said, you are crazy. There's no way nobody can do 11 times. Um, but yeah, I did. Yeah. And you and your husband stayed together through 11 times. <laughs> I mean, that yeah. could be a record too. Yeah. 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 No, wow. he digs me. Yeah. So, so, so then you got pregnant with these, you yeah. know, you set the record for 15 pounds and a gallon of water and all this stuff, but like what happened at the birth? So, um, Helen Claire was born naturally, no drugs. Um, beautiful, beautiful birth. Um, I, I would pick up my head from having a really hard contraction and I would, I would tell everybody around me, I would say, I just want you to know, I'm having a wonderful time here. <laughs> and you were doing no those, drugs, like you yeah, were- Yeah, no drugs, but it was one of those, you know, when you get like the drugs, the yes. endorphins that come, uh -huh. right? So I was feeling them, baby. And um, so everything was good. And then as soon as Helen Claire was born, Millicent flipped, the second one flipped. So she was back presenting and she was going against the cord. So all of a sudden her heart rate went down to 40 and it was emergency C-section time. So I went from like no drugs to all of a sudden, um, now it's everybody's like nine one one. Like everybody's like, oh god, and I had to move over <laughs> to the to the you know table. And I have a, a medical condition called malignant hyperthermia, which normally means nothing, but um, um, it means anesthesia is very difficult. And um, so getting me down is not easy. And so that my I can see my that my doctor, who I still know, she's great. 
uh, talking to the anesthesiologist saying like, get her down, get her, and he couldn't get me down. Somebody else had to come in. So I told her, I said, I'm an Olympic champion, cut. I won't remember. And she did, but I do remember. <laughs> so it felt, it felt like, it felt like a burning sensation. It didn't feel like you would think it would feel. Um, but I was out shortly after she started cutting, but I was like, I, I can do this. Women around the world have had to have C-sections without anesthesia and I can do this. And we're not, you know, Millicent is going to be fine. And she's rides horses now and she's 15 and she's just a beautiful light on the planet. Oh, so, you know, it yeah. probably helped that you weren't in your right mind going into saying that. <laughs> bingo, bingo. Right. No, because you do have, I mean, there is a high that if you don't go through the drugs, and I think at the time, Nicole, I think I was trying to convince you not to go for drugs. Did you go with drugs? Uh, I tried not to, but they came pretty quickly. And I ended up with the C-section too. Mine was a ridiculous story too. But okay. I mean, it's just how they all went. After I interviewed yeah. women, I just realized like we all have these sort of ridiculous stories until you get to the woman who's had like eight kids and they're like, yeah, yeah. that one was just sort of fast and that, and they don't even like yeah. it right at all. <laughs> but for me, like, you know, it was a yeah. similar thing. Again, <laughs> you know, prior to our conversation now, we talked a little bit about this concept of control yeah, and how in right. life, you know, we think we control things. And one right. thing I remember is that I did all this research so I could try to create some kind of birth plan, but anyone who's ever had a kid, when I would say like, yeah, I'm working on my birth plan, they would just go, ah, ha, 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 ha. yeah, just throw that away. And I'm yeah. like, well, what am I supposed to do? Like show up with nothing? I got to have something. So, um, you know, I just ended up having a baby during the week between Christmas and New Year's and both supplies and doctors and help at the hospital were pretty sparse. And uh, had a lot of things. No Jewish doctors. Yay. <laughs> right? Yeah. Come Very on. Fun. Yeah. We didn't have no. But um, my birth just kind of went crazy and sideways. And at the end, they were like, emergency C-section. And, you know, I just, it was, it was funny and awesome and all the things. And right. what's really great about these times is whether I think you get drugs or you don't get drugs is you go through a period that just becomes fuzzy no matter what. Yeah. And so yeah. what I really remember is all this craziness. And then I just sort of remember having a baby, you know, there's oh, a baby huh. with yeah, me, yeah. you know? Yeah. And um, I think, I think it's just a beautiful, especially when you have people who are these driven goal setting athlete types and we, yeah. you know, we, we fight through or we try to do our thing, but at the end of the day, it, none of it really matters because what comes out is this little gold medal and it's a new baby. Right. Right. <laughs> right. 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 And I say that like my experience was perfect. Right. That it, uh, it was really, it, it was, it was the way that it was supposed to be. I don't look back and say, Oh, it should have been different. No. I mean, and you know, I get a great story out of it, <laughs> you know, it's, um, and, and, and Millicent, they accidentally put the tube down in her tummy instead of her lungs. So her belly swelled. So she had to go to the NICU. So here she is this little eight pounder and like all the other ones are like a pound. Right. So like, it was like the beefy one over oh, here. Totally. Um, yes. Yeah. Oh my so gosh. I had to wait till like the air got out of there, but, um, now she was, you know, she, like she had a certain Zen to her that is still exists today. Yeah. So you have Helen Claire and Millicent 
Right. Oh. And, yeah. and we had, you know, we got off track to talk about ridiculous birth stories and, <laughs> and the perfection <laughs> of these moments in our lives. Um, when we were actually sort of talking about the topic of like, how hard do you push your kids? And uh, yeah. so maybe, maybe we can talk a little bit about how you raised your, your daughters and knowing that you also have a son, yeah. did you raise them any differently? Did I raise them any differently? Um, um, okay, so let's talk about it just in terms of sports. I really followed the advice of my parents, which was you find somebody who is <clears throat> good at this and who is an excellent coach and you give them to the person who is the good coach. And not when I say give them, I don't mean <clears throat> that you don't establish boundaries between the coach and the athlete. Of course you do, but excuse me. <clears throat> that you um, that that the the parent is not the driving force behind it. Now, <clears throat> growing up with an Olympic champion as a mother has meant that wherever they go, whatever they do, um, that they hear it nonstop. People want to know about you know being having an Olympian for a mother and whatnot. So. Um, so number one is I knew it wasn't going to come from me, not even with my parents. But number two is, um, um, you know, my parents let me own it and I did the same thing with them. So if, if that, so, so what my daughter really, really wants is to be an equestrian athlete. And I'm like, uh, is this like a bankruptcy starter kit here? <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> but we're figuring out like, how do we make it happen for her? And that is, she has this incredible drive when it comes to being an equestrian. And so we are going to make it happen for her. Whatever we have to do, we are, we're doing it. Um, 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 so, so my parents introduced my brother and sister into swimming. It was not their gig. They went on to go do different things. And, um, and, 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 and I have to say swimming is not their thing, right? So equestrian is not really my thing, but right. When you find what your kid wants, as opposed to what you want for them, then that's sort of the direction that we've been going in. I tell this story all the time. My mother hates women tell the story, but um, it is a true story. And um, so I want you to know that my mother is a phenomenal mother who cares about me, loves me to death. I uh, always love I when people intro with something like that. You know, something, yes. something crazy is coming. <laughs> right, right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I broke my first American record and I was 14 years old. And as you know, in swimming, you've got prelims and finals. So I broke it in prelims. And it was one of those things, like I looked at the wall and all, there's a standing ovation. And I was like, wow, that time is fast. Oh, the time's a, an American record. And who did that time? And the lane five, oh, me, right? It was one of those, like, right? And I started crying and I was all upset. So my parents were at home and I called them, say, mom, mom, I broke the American record. She goes, good, good. She goes, did you get in finals? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I just went faster than anybody's ever been before. And she goes, good, good. She goes, now, um, what stroke do you swim? <laughs> I said, I swim the butterfly mother. And she goes, oh, I like it when you swim the backstroke because I can see your face. Okay. So like that's how crazy that they were not into the sport. Like I could never talk to them about splits or even like my time. If I had, if I had like 
been off by 30 seconds on my time. They would have been like, if I was had a smile, like, yay, they would have been the same way, right? They would, oh, good job, right? I could have, they, it, anyway, so. Wait, uh, I love this concept because this yeah. actually makes me think about the, the, the greater concept of swimmer parents mm -hmm. and crazy swimmer parents. So I did a stint as a age group swim coach for about five years before I started racing as a triathlete. And, um, it's a real thing. And when you're the yeah. kid, you don't really know who the crazy swimmer parents are, but when you're the coach, you know who the crazy swimmer parents are. And I think that probably applies to every sport. There's probably soccer, sure, yeah. hockey parents, lacrosse parents, you know, everybody's in right. here with a different perspective and right. we don't want to be the crazy athlete parents. We right. want to let our kids do what they're going to do and support them. Right. 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 And, and unfortunately, this phenomena of parents annoying the heck out of coaches has allowed them to make these rules to say parents can't be on the deck, putting them at risk. As you know, Nicole, one of my issues is sexual abuse in sport. And so we've actually made it much more dangerous for kids by having these crazy parents. Um, they the 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 coach is now able to say parents can't be on the deck, can't parents can't be around, and what the harms that that does to athletes, and what it does to sport overall is not having parents be involved. So yeah, now I um, like only in retrospect can I appreciate. Like my mom hears that story and she thinks like, oh, people are going to think I wasn't a good mother. No, they think you're an awesome mother. Like you allowed me to travel the world and you allowed me to, I moved away from home at age 15 to go train for the 1980 Olympics. Now, <laughs> remember, it's not their gig. They don't enjoy going to meets. They don't enjoy, right? They don't, um, when they came to the Olympics in 1984, it was their first swim meet they had been to in five years. Oh my God. That's how it just wasn't their thing. No, but right? I mean, no, no parent in their right mind could enjoy going to swim meets. <laughs> all day. You've got like the parents bring a cooler, <laughs> they right. drink their beer, or maybe if they're like athletes, they go out for their workout between events. You know, I mean, it's really a long day. <laughs> right. And especially in Florida where it's like just hot as Hades and yeah. Oh my God. Right. So you were still in Florida. Like you, you spent your whole, you've always been in Florida. No, yeah, I was in Florida. Um, I trained at, at I was in Jacksonville uh, and then moved to Gainesville, which is about an hour and a half away, to train for the 1980 Olympics. Um, went to college at Duke in North Carolina and then trained out in California before the 1984 Olympics. Okay, got so, it. Yeah. So let's put a cap on, uh, you know, kind of close up our discussion for a moment here. We can come yeah. back to it anytime about like kids and pushing and how hard you go. But I've, uh, this is interesting because both Tim and I are champion, you know, triathletes and we were both grew up swimmers and we have this daughter and we're like, well, I mean, obviously there is some genetic thing that will be passed down to a child of two very athletic people. And we just assumed she'd be a swimmer. We were like, well, duh, we'll just dump her in the pool and she'll go. She she says she's a great swimmer. She can barely swim. Like literally <laughs> she can swim across a pool kind of, but she doesn't really do the strokes and she doesn't like it. And we put her in swim team and she was like, I don't like that at all. It's way too cold. And you know what she's gravitating to is what? sports like Ninja with oh. like this 
weight strength to weight ratio because she's a little peanut or uh-huh. climbing or even some like cycling and those are cycling I get, but the other sports, I don't know jack about any of them, but right. they just look fun. And that's yeah. what I want for her is I want fun and I don't want her to feel this pressure of coming from these like accomplished athlete parents. So I'm relating a lot to that point. But there is one story I remember reading a while ago and it created this like firestorm. Maybe it was like in the New York Times. It was about these two young daughters. They were like eight and 10 and they were doing half marathons and marathon, like trail runs and winning races really young, like beating the adults. And their parents were getting really like lambasted for this. And what the parents said was, well, they keep asking to do it. Like they want to do it. I'm not making them train for it. They're asking me to please let me run this race. So that's the line. Like, how do you say no? Do you let them do it? Like there's, you don't know if it's safe for kids that young to run long distance. Like what do you do? Right. Right. What do I think? Um, I don't know. I would call you probably, Nicole. <laughs> Seriously. No, I would call people that I thought would know the answer. Um, right. Because I don't know. And um, I, but, but what I, I do think for eight, 10 year olds um, <clears throat> is if you do want to nurture talent, there is something about growth plates and how much, how much that they can take at that time. And <clears throat> right. Talking to, you know, again, you know, I, I'm on the advisory board, as I said, <laughs> the Aspen Institute. They have lots of experts there. Um, if you go online, they'll have, right? But but most experts say that, um, you know, that certainly <clears throat> um, year-round training should not happen until basically puberty. So until like 12, 13, 14, you know, a little later for boys than for men, for girls, um, but to have them do other things and because if they do it nonstop, no matter how successful they are, and there's always like that fun in being successful is um, they're going to get injured. They're going to get burnt out or they're going to get sick. So um, for elite athletes, we know that there's, there's always that line of when are you about to push the envelope and you're about to, we called it, I don't know what you called it. We call it tipping over. Right, so you want to push right to the absolute max, but you don't want to tip over. You don't want to get sick, injured, or um, burned out. And so, like, how do you learn that good pain, bad pain? How do you learn all that stuff? Um, but I think for kids, as you were saying, eight, ten years old is, you know, you, probably the parent needs to make sure that they're doing other kinds of things. I did want to say when you're when you were saying how your daughter uh, really likes doing combat type sports is there's an amazing woman named Sally Roberts. You would love her. She runs an organization called Wrestle Like a Girl. Girls wrestling is the number one fastest growing sport in America. She's gotten all these states to sanction girls wrestling. It is now an emerging sport with the NCAA. Um, And, you know, when you think of this world where um, women are in danger and they do, I mean, right? The sexual assault is such a prevalent thing. How great to learn any combat sport to not have any fear of, of being in combat with somebody else. Um, I wish I had had it when I was young. I absolutely me too. Yeah. 
and it's yeah, not yeah, too yeah. late for us, but I mean, anything you can teach someone younger, they have an advantage over us old ladies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and unlike, unlike, you know, swimming and triathlon or whatever, I think it's more in the, in the world of gymnastics and that people think that workouts are fun, right? In, in gymnastics, oh, I don't know how they got this view of this emotional abuse and being told they're not worth anything and the fat shaming and the, all that. Um, but what they, um, because the sport is just inherently fun, getting to flip around and do all this, you know, like standing on your hands for a long time. Um, and I, I think combat sports are like that. So, yeah, I agree. I think that's yeah. so cool. All right. Let's go back to your swimming. Boom. Okay. We've hit the rabbit hole. We closed it. Um, okay. so, so age 14, we know you set an American record. I mean, this catapulted you, you had to be under the microscope at that point where you, and you said you left home at 15, right? Where'd you go? Yeah. Um, I went to Gainesville, uh, university of Florida had, so my coach, uh, so, uh, when I was 11 years old, my family moved to Jacksonville, Florida, and there was a, another great coach there. Again, notice the lucky trend, Eddie Reese's brother, Randy Reese, again, probably 24 years old, just getting started in coaching now has had, you know, 50, 60 Olympians. Um, but I went onto this team as an 11 year old. He probably, frankly, I probably did get started too soon. He put me on the quote a team and, um, you know, as an 11 year old. And I would say in addition to being very physically demanding, probably more than I was really ready for, it was also very emotionally demanding in that I was so much younger than my peers. And it was obvious to everybody around that I was, that I was going places, right? I have like talent dripping from my fingers in the water. And right. If, I mean, if you were 18 years old and had just dedicated your last decade to this endeavor and then to have somebody walk on the deck, you can imagine there was not a lot of kindness going on. Like the girls used to fight over, like, I don't want her in my lane. No, you put her in your lane or right. That kind of stuff. Um, and that's hard. I think for why on earth I kept in the sport, I don't know, but, uh, I, I did have these experiences that, um, of feeling graced when I was swimming that I just didn't get any place else. There's a connection with God when you're in the, where, when you're in flow, when you're in, um, uh, you know, when everything's working, um, that, uh, that I think those, it was those experiences, uh, that kept me in the sport, uh, all that time. So I, I break my first American record and then my coach left to go, you know, he got a, he got a promotion. He gets to be head coach at university of, uh, Florida. And, um, and so I followed him to go train there for, to get ready for the 1980 Olympics. Which so, we didn't go to. Oh my God. Okay. Well, one thing that's coming to mind is, um, was your self-esteem strong during these years? I mean, you're being treated like a, you're not really accepted. People are jealous, but you do maybe have some internal strength because you're feeling something special about what you were meant to do here. But right. I mean, you have a social. No, so I, yeah, I would say, yeah, not so good. Things were really tough for me until I won. 
And as soon as I broke that American record, and as soon as I won, then um, two things happened. One is that group of, at, so I won in 1977. So that was after the 1976 Olympics. So all these uh, women who were now gone, they had gone to college. And so they weren't around to harass me. And then two is when I won, like, like everything changed, right? Then it was not, I was not an up and comer. I was an established, I was a proven commodity, if you will. Um, and, and, and those two things I think are really different. So, so it was much easier to be the winner than it is to be the up and comer. And I've never forgotten that baby when, whenever you see an up and comer, um, who it's obvious that they can do something great is to empower that person to to add a girl that person or add a boy that person to uh, to you know keep them in the game because I think it's the hardest time for anybody is when they're in the process of making it not not as soon as they've made as soon as you break that record as soon as you win that national title there's like a settling down do you agree oh yeah the word that's coming to mind is confidence and i'm i'm feeling like i've often wondered if what comes first like were you super confident going into this like life-changing time or did you have this sort of magical performance and then boom one of the big things that shifts is this confidence and sort of self, I don't know, you've accepted that you are amazing, right? right, right. Like truly. And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. no, I went from getting fifth, seventh and ninth at nationals to winning nationals, like, uh, in six months. And if the, if in 1976, if the trials had just been six months later, I would have made the 1976 Olympic team, but right. But I put on like, you know, 30 pounds and of, of, you know, are you go from that skinny Puberty. to yeah. right? Yeah. <clears throat> little kid to woman. And, um, uh, I, um, and yeah, I, I don't think I could, I don't think I thought that I could have won, um, until I did, but I have to say I was surrounded by people. My coach absolutely thought that I was going to win. Um, and that also pissed off my teammates as you can imagine, but no, my, my coaches, uh, and the other adults that I was surrounded with treated me like I was, um, you know, I was going, it was just inevitable that I was going to win, that I was going to be, uh, it was inevitable. You know, sometimes it takes other people believing really strongly in you before you believe in you. Right. That's so true. And that's why I don't hold back with other advocates, other, you know, a 22 year old that's trying to find their voice in being an advocate for athletes rights or for whatever is just like, go for it. Don't listen to what other people are saying. Just go do it. Um, you know, they like, feel like they need permission or something. No, 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 you don't. No, you don't go, go. (laughs) Well, it's like all your experiences have led you to be the ultimate champion of women. You know, and that is, that's an organization you started and we're going to get there. <laughs> Hold on. Um, so, so you, you end up going swimming at Duke and uh, they, they weren't Ivy, but kind of 
kind of Ivy, but the reason I bring that up is Ivy leagues don't give athletic scholarships. And I read that you, I'm assuming Duke did not give at least swimming scholarships because I read that you were the very first ever recipient of a swimming scholarship there, right? Correct. Correct. You've always been a pioneer. That is so cool. So (laughs) how did that come about? So my brother was at Harvard and Harvard had a really good swimming program. And so did Yale. Um, But I really wanted that scholarship. And I, um, I knew that the, what being financially independent was going to feel like and what that was going to mean for me. So I wanted an Ivy league education and Duke is, you know, you know, top, whatever. Uh, so really my choices were Duke and Stanford and actually I wanted Duke because it did not have as developed a program as, uh, as Stanford did. And so I wanted to be able to swim, get a full scholarship, but I, I thought that I would be perfectly happy getting second place or low, right? I thought that like, I'm just going to swim in college. It's going to be enjoyable and I'm going to have a great time. And like, I didn't know myself well enough to know like just how impossible that <laughs> was going to be. But I, um, but so I, I went there specifically because um, I did not want to go to a very high pressure program where I had come from. So my second workout ever at Duke, this, a very dear friend of mine, Holden Banks. Do you know Holden? He, yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. I got it. I can't wait to tell him we just had this interview. Yes. Yes. So dear, dear friend of mine, Holden Banks, um, uh, said, uh, he, he got out of practice, the second practice and he goes to the shower. <laughs> And like there were showers before you went in, right? There was like, you had to go through the showers to get into the big pool area. And he's just like shaking it out and he's wiggling his arms and he's, you know, stretching his neck. And he's like, you know, I just don't feel that great. Okay. I thought that like a guillotine was going to come from the sky, chop his head off. Blood was going to flow everywhere. In my mind, that could not happen. That somebody could get out of practice and not die, <laughs> not right. Cause I came from such a strict, uh, program that, uh, you know, you took, if you didn't feel good in practice, tough. Go. So wait, Holden got out in the middle of practice. So I swam masters with Holden, like for many years. And, um, yeah. he's one of those guys who's like a super talent in breaststroke still right. like he could not swim for a year and hop in and crush some kind of master's record in like 50 breaststroke or hundred breasts. I mean, hilarious and just a good guy. So good it's guy. funny. I mean, that's also could potentially be a sprinter mentality too. You know, yeah. you were coming from like hardcore 400 IM, like kind of that distance mentality. And you know, when you're suddenly you're thrown into a program with people who have a little different approach, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. It was, a, it was just a, t- it was a much more lackadaisical program. If you didn't miss a, I mean, I used to miss an average of maybe one practice a year. Um, if that, um, and, and um, you know, people, you know, had academic goals and they had, um, cl- you know, classes that interfered with practice and they opted for class over the practice. So it was just a, a very, um, just not as well developed program and not as hardcore a program as what I had come from. And I, I, that was really good for me. 
Yeah. Oh, okay. So it was a good change. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm sitting here thinking like, I, was your swimming success largely due to what you mentioned before, like talent drip it, dripping out of my fingers, like talent? Or was it mindset? Or was it just freaking hard work? Or were you like just the perfect student who had all three? Um, I would say I, I developed all three. I mean, I definitely had the talent, but I, every coach I ever had said that I was the hardest worker that they had ever had. Um, so, and I swam fast in practice and not everybody does. One of my, one of my favorite people in the, on the planet that I ever swam with was Pablo Morales, who's been the head coach at uh, Nebraska for a long time. Pablo's not a great, was not a great workout swimmer. Um, he would have good pop times, but, um, and what was great about working out with Pablo is he never took that personally. He never made that mean something about what kind of a player he was. He could not have survived in a USA gymnastics environment. Well, like, you have to perform all the time. I could have, I, I did swim fast in practice and I did, I sort of, you know, could do it on a regular basis. Um, but but what I appreciated about Pablo was, you know, he would have he would have days like where like the 12 year olds are beating him. But what was great about Pablo is he didn't make it mean anything about what kind of an athlete he was or whether or not he could perform or he, he didn't make him depressed when he would have a bad workout. It, he was, he, it water off a duck. He just kept going. And, you know, when it came to the Olympics or when it came to national championships and NCAAs and right, he was there. Um, it's just a different body types and different people uh, work out and train and whatnot very differently. Okay. But so number one, I was a very hard worker. Number two is I didn't start getting into the meditation part of it. Um, until maybe like my last year and a half of training is when I really got into um, um, all different kinds of, of ways of emotionally getting prepared and um, how do you make it feel like, you know, you go to warm up and it's awful and right, you feel like, you know, you got lead weights attached to you and how do you get the feeling of beauty and grace and power uh, back it, right between <laughs> prelims and finals or between, right? So being able to do that in your head and how do you create flow, not having flow happen to you, but being able to create flow. Um, you know, I was older, I was 20, 21 before I started you, doing that. Yeah. You needed to have a little bit of maturity, but that's still really young. Um, yeah. so how, how do you create that? I mean, I think everyone listening is like, I want that when I don't yeah. feel good to feel oh. like, Oh, have it kick in 30 minutes later. Yeah. Number one, establish a good practice of meditation so that you know how to, and the more you do it, the quicker your body and you can kind of feel yourself like moving into a meditative theta type state. Okay. Number one. <clears throat> number two is when it feels flow, like when you're in this moment of grace, remember everything about it. Capture that feeling of, in swimming, for example, let's say it's butterfly, and there's a there's a rhythm to it. It's a there's a sound to it, and there's a there's an ease feeling to it, and there's a right. So you remember everything about it, all the senses, all the everything else. When when you're in that meditative state, is you recreate that. 
so that you're right there. You close your eyes, you get into your meditative, into your meditation. Um, I'm enjoying right now um, Calm, the app that you yeah. can use, right? And I've, I've, I've actually, I'm going to ask you, Nicole, for what your favorite thing is because I'm, I think I've used them all now. Um, but, um, but yeah, that is how I was able to, uh, I was undefeated high school and college uh, for dual meets. And just being able to, um, to, uh, to, um, um, uh, uh, use the, all the tools that are out there to be able to, um, to have it go well. Yeah, I get it. I do. Um, I do. There's nothing like it. There's there's nothing like it. There's nothing like that feeling of walking on air once you've actually succeeded in doing that either. You know, it's almost, uh, I could see how people get pretty addicted to meditation as well. I actually don't have a recommendation because I am on the verge of exploring that part of my life. Like I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, come and talk to me. Yes. Okay, cool. We're going to nail that down. So I often think about like, all the experiences of our life happen and they lead us down the path that we find ourselves at, you know, you're what, 50? 58. (laughs) 58. Yes. Oh my God. Amazing. So you had an experience in college that put you on the side of many of the people that you now help and honor and defend and stand for. And it has to do with sexual assault. And I thought it might be important to talk about if you're willing to go there, because um, I think it really, in my opinion, informs where you are today. And it it may also help some people find their voice or feel stronger about sharing their story. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I, I, so I was raped my sophomore year in college. I was out for a run, and I, I like to share the story because women who have overcome it, meaning um, they're, they're not experiencing PTSD anymore, they, 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 um, they have uh, a, a wonderful physical life with, like I have a great physical life with my husband. Uh, they, um, they. Um, you know, they like, I think, um, I would have loved to have me talk to me when I was 19 years old. I had new role models of somebody who had overcome something very traumatic. Um, and, um, and I think especially being an Olympic, being an Olympian before it happened. So I had already, was already a 1980 Olympian. And you know, world champion and national champion, blah blah blah. Um, and I, I think that um, that this idea of uh, victims not being tough enough and not not being able to overcome it, there's this idea of like just get over it, and and um, how brutal that is. So nobody thought I was emotionally weak. So therefore. Okay, and I was crazy lucky, lucky, lucky that uh, my rapist had no power. This was not Bill Cosby. This was not Weinstein. This was not somebody, right? He was a stranger who jumped out of the woods, literally, 
and who um, was a lower socioeconomic, had a very tough uh, accent that, um, like it was hard for me to understand what he was saying a lot of times. So because, because he was not a Duke student, probably, um, it, uh, it, <clears throat> it meant that um, people believed two things. What was so key to my healing that I hope everybody listening is, people believed that it happened. So nobody was, there was no sort of he said, she said, right? I was really beaten up. I went straight to the, to the police station and nobody said like, are you sure you got raped? Um, right, that did not happen. There were feminists who came before me who, um, who made sure that I didn't have to marry that guy. If I, was in, if I was in a third world country, if I was in lots of places in Africa and Asia and South America, I would have had to marry him. And so, or, or I would have been this huge shame on my family, right? So we, we had already, even this, this is only 1981, <clears throat> come a long way. So they believed that it happened. And then when I had PTSD, well, now we would say it is PTSD. Uh, people didn't doubt the depth of my emotional harm. So as a lawyer, I'm a now a civil rights lawyer. And, and when people uh, either come to me or they come to their school, it, what is da incredibly damaging is when somebody believes, yes, Nassar abused you, but come on, <clears throat> get over it. You know, there's a, there's a philosophy of life. People are about as happy as they make up their mind to be. And I grew up with that philosophy. My mother is eternally joyful and happy. I can wake her up and she's like, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and it, it just didn't work. To, right there's also the philosophy of um, karma meaning you know if you're good good things will happen to you I did believe in karma I did I was came from a Christian tradition of God is going to take care of you he loves you he wants good things to happen to you I couldn't imagine what I had done to deserve this um, so I had a great case of PTSD nobody kind of prepared me for it I didn't know who I was anymore I didn't um, uh, I couldn't sleep. I felt, I felt scared all the time. I felt like they call it being hypervigilant, right? So you're always kind of on the lookout for like, what's the next thing coming out? Even though it's completely irrational, I, um, I didn't have control over my mind, which I had always had before. Um, one of the ways, again, very, very lucky is there's something called the ACE score, uh, the um, adverse childhood experiences. And you can chart somebody's health and their addiction and their, um, their financial and emotional stability based on how many adverse childhood experiences that they had prior to this happen. And um, my ACE score is zero. So um, while I had awful um, PTSD and I, I could kind of go, I'm not going to go into the craziness of what, just what I was thinking, but for, <laughs> for, every, for the one in four women out there who's been sexually assaulted and who may have experienced PTSD, it's something like over 90% of women who have experienced sexual assault will have some kind of emotional PTSD um, sort of not knowing yourself and not being able to like, get it under control. No, you can't. It's woo, you know, you're gonzo. <clears throat> um, is now, 
there are so many resources available. So people believe that it happened and the depth of my emotional harm and Duke University did everything they could to make sure that my sexual assault did not interfere with my life's trajectory. If you think of life as being long and not worried about this semester, next semester, right? But as you know, I'm 58 now and years later is what do I need to do to make sure that Nancy's okay, you know, in a, in a year or two. And this is, this is classic Duke University of what happened to me is um, there was a place to park that was far away that um, we called it Guam. And you know, a lot of lazy students didn't want to park in Guam. They wanted to park in the place that's really close to where the, right? For me to park in Guam, you had to go through woods in order to get to my dorm. And I would just be too scared. But in my mind, I would just tell myself like, oh, just this once, I'm just gonna be lazy. I'm just gonna park illegally in this park case. So I got a ton of tickets. So I go to pay the tickets. And they said, hey, Nancy, how come you're getting all these tickets? What's going on? And I just broke down and said, like, I cannot park in Guam. And they forgave the tickets. And not only did they forgive the tickets, but they gave me a spe special parking pass that enabled me to park pretty much wherever I wanted to on campus. Um, I couldn't park where, like, the emergency vehicles, but I could park where all the religious leaders parked, all the visitor spaces that's taking care of somebody. Um, and, and it's those, I can, you know, a lot of yeah. those little things that ended up meaning that, um, you know, they, they redshirted me. I didn't have to swim for a year. Um, unbeknownst to me, I really think my body from that level of training really needed a break, needed a rest. And, um, and, uh, I, I just can't tell you how that is not the norm of how people get treated and how it should be the norm. I will work to the day I die so that people, uh, so that people, and I do mean boys and girls, men and women who are sexually assaulted, get the um, help they need to be able to have, you know, in the long scheme of life, what do you need to do? Because we tend to think of once people have PTSD or some emotional harm that is permanent, that you're doomed, <laughs> right? That it's, you're, this is, you're, the way you feel now is the way you're always going to feel. And that's just not true. So that's why when I say like, I want, I used to go to the library and I would try to find um, women like me, like show me somebody who's been raped, who felt, who was, very emotionally traumatized by it, but then was okay. Like you show me somebody and it just didn't exist. If anything, the people who were writing about it were like hot smack dab in it. They were, um, they were, um, um, you know, like the, the anger and the upset was sort of coming off the page. I got that. I already felt that I did. I needed like hope or some vision of like, yeah. how long was this going to last? And what were the therapies now? My gosh, there's some fun, frankly, because of uh, all of the veterans who've come back with PTSD, we know a lot more about how do you calm the brain down from a traumatic experience? And, um, and um, so, yeah, no. So a lot of the work that I do um, has to do with, um, uh, 
in particular sport, but making sure that um, that sport cleans up its act when it comes to sexual assault and abuse. Um, we we you know, this is. I mean, thank you so much for being so open and vulnerable with a, an experience that for many people they probably push down and never talk about again in their whole life. Um, and I That's think so unhealthy it is. And you now call me. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. I, I mean, no. <laughs> ah, but, email uh, you, no. <laughs> text you. No. Um, no. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, really makes me feel like is when you go along in your life and you feel like you are safe and you feel like you are strong. I mean, you were a freaking strong Olympic swimmer, like swimmer girls, you don't mess with them. They're not fragile. And you're I was probably, slightly beastie girl. You can say it. Beastie yeah, girl. You, right? you were, you know what? That's, right. a, that's a perfect way to say it. And that's yeah. a huge compliment. And, um, and you were probably running, I would assume a route that you've done before and in a oh, place that felt times. safe to you. 100%. And so to have this happen and this person who I don't know his story, but I'm assuming there was some kind of mental instability because you just don't do this randomly. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you do. You're the one who knows, but to have someone just out of the blue, shake you out of this, you know, path you were on, it probably made you feel like you can never get back there again. Oh, I, at the time I, I thought, my swimming career was over. It was all I could do was to stay in school. <clears throat> um, yeah, no. And I, 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 my, my fear was number one, that I would always feel that way. But number two is that God had forsaken me. Why had this happened? Right. So I, the, the, I was saying about the, the, the karma, right. The karma is real. I don't believe in karma. I don't believe that bad things happen to um, that, you know, because you did something wrong or that, that you, that, you know, you did something to cause it or whatnot. I, my, I had to really shift my whole relationship to God. I had to find a whole new theology to <clears throat> have God in my life um, that didn't involve shame. Yeah. Me being a bad person. Cause yes. I wasn't. <laughs> Yes. And I mean, through it all now, you know, you can look back and be like grateful you lived in, in America where you had mentioned in other cultures, like you could be murdered or put to death because somebody rapes you Bingo. because of the shame that it brings to your family and these, these traditions that I can't, I don't understand and could never relate to. Um, but what you've really done is, I mean, there is the cutest puppy in the world that just walked in this room. Is that a puppy? We have, I have uh, two COVID puppies there. We got a big dog and a little dog. Oh my yeah. God. That's there. absolutely awesome. You are surrounded <laughs> by like love and light and positivity. And this is what I think you're bringing to the world now. So, you know, your swimming career is a whole nother conversation. I mean, we can go into all the details and, and talk more about it. But what I really want to do is just sort of like 
move this conversation into what you do today and how you help so many people who feel like there is no hope, they're no longer safe, and now they're not empowered because of things that have happened in their lives. So when, when we first talked, you sent me a couple big initiatives, some big movements going on, and they kind of fell in two camps. And I know there's a lot more to you, but these seem to be the areas you're focused on right now. And one is about, um, you know, helping sexual assault victims to, you know, regain, uh, to, to basically shut down that the people who are perpetuating this, this issue in sport. And the other big movement that you're involved with is equal women's rights in sport. Right. Is this it? Yeah. 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 No, I mean, and those two things you can see are very related. Those are both big athletes rights type things. I got into the Olympic movement thinking that I could make this change fairly simply. I thought, well, I'm a member of the Olympic community and I'm a civil rights lawyer and I, I see what, what's, what's happening over here in the Olympic movement. But, and what I learned was that power, like the system is the way that it is because people authentically want it that way and, and um, are willing to fight really, really hard in order not to protect the victim. And so it took me a while to like, I would think like I'd write the white paper and then Scott Black at the Olympic committee would like adopt it. And right. And so boy, was I wrong. Uh-huh. So and the system itself so, is flawed. Yeah. So what, and what, where, where I sort of over the last 10 years I've come is that until athletes have equal rights at the table, meaning they have um, the ability to say no, whether it's to a coach or an administrator or what, if they don't have the ability to say no and still make the team and still, if, if, uh, um, if, if athletes are not the ones who are deciding where the next dollar goes, does it go into the pocket of Sarah Hirschland, who's making $750,000 while most athletes are living below poverty level? Do athletes need to be in power positions, or it doesn't have to be an athlete, it can be their representative, right? Same way like the NBA doesn't depend on the Shaquille O'Neal's to actually be doing the, the advocating. They can hire somebody to have them be the ones who are doing it. So, uh, but, but yeah, but no, until we get athletes have the power to be able to speak out. Um, any of you who saw athlete A, that was a masterful production of exactly how little power athletes have. For most of Allie Rison's career, her mother said she made less than $500 a month. Um, uh, in in um, The Weight of Gold with Michael Phelps, he says most swimmers are getting $1,700 a month. But even $1,700 a month, I mean, come on, people are trying to live on this amount of money. As and when, you, when you compare it to how much money that the administrators are getting. It's just, so if athletes had a seat at the table and we're deciding where the money goes, how we're spending it, um, um, I, I, I think it would, uh, it would be a, make a big difference. So we, we just got uh, Senate Bill 2330 passed unanimously out of the Senate. Now think about that, okay? Democrats, Republicans. Nothing's unanimous these days. <laughs> it, how crazy is that? It just moved on to the House. So we are, so I would ask, 
your, your people who are listening to please go on to usopu.info, usopu.info and sign up as either, uh, many of you are gonna, who are signing up, I'm sure who are listening are gonna be sport leaders or you're gonna be elite athletes. This is not the time to be shy about who it is that you are in sports, but please sign up. Right now we have uh, about 2,000 people. We have 500 Olympians, Paralympians, elite athletes. We have 200 of the best coaches in the country. We have uh, about 75 sport leaders in the country, um, meaning the academics or the people who are leading child protection groups, uh, et cetera. We even have a national governing body, USA Biathlon, or excuse me, uh, bad, USA Badminton, um, who have signed on to say we need to have these major structural reforms to um, the Olympic movement. Uh, so we've got to get it passed now by the house. They're kind of busy with COVID and getting relief. And so we got to like, how, how do you break through? Um, and so we're asking athletes to write op-eds and to contact their representatives. But that's how you get into our system is either championwomen.org. Um, we just got trademark status. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Way to go. Thank you. Or um, into USOPU. Info. Okay, um, we'll have links for sure in the show notes. So if you didn't catch it and you're on a run listening, head over to nicoledeboom.com and it'll be in the show notes for sure. Links to both of these organizations so that we can help other people gain the rights and the power that they need to have. Correct. Correct. The Olympic movement is unique in that they don't, the board doesn't answer to anyone. After the Larry Nassar situation, uh, uh, one person has been fired. One. That tells you all you need to know that they're, they're, because they don't answer to anyone, there's no opportunity for, you know, w we had well over 100 Olympians sign on for the board to resign. And they are like, oh, isn't that interesting that 100 Olympians want us to resign? They didn't do anything. So anyway, we, so we have to, um, go through these statutory changes. Most people don't even know that the Olympic movement is governed by a, <clears throat> uh, is governed by a statute and how that statute impacts athletes' lives dramatically. Um, um, I, I, I bet, Nicole, even as sophisticated as you are, businesswoman, elite athlete, married to an elite athlete, li swimming, li everything about you is involved in sport, in elite sport. Yeah, I, I, my, my intuition, I, we've never talked about it, is that you don't know about the Sports Act and how it impacts your life. No, I have no idea. And I need some education. Yeah. Yeah. Another podcast. <laughs> oh my gosh, we need like yeah. three more hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, maybe can you share some of that information now or do you want to put some links for people to... Um, I, I, if people go on to usopu.info, we have a ton of information that's there, but okay, but let, let, let's just go over a few things on what we had to go to Congress to be able to get. The Olympic Committee wasn't providing athletes with health insurance that covered pregnancy, uh, sickness, or injury. Now, if you're not going to cover an athlete's pregnancy, sickness, or injury, like what are you covering them for? Like, this is the youngest, healthiest population imaginable. Um, <clears throat> so, um, 
then <clears throat> so you think you know that the Olympic Committee essentially gave away all the rights to those five rings to colleges and universities and got nothing in re in return for it. So not only did athletes not getting anything in return, COVID hit, they're cutting all these programs, a lot of women's programs, they didn't promise, oh, if you want to use our rings, you have to agree not to cut any Olympic programs. You have to agree to have a certain number of Olympic programs, something. They have they, nothing. Um, uh, what else? Um, 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 the, 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 right now in court, the gymnasts who were abused by Larry Nasser are fighting this issue of the Olympic movement saying, it's not our responsibility. It's not our job. Um, I'm so sorry you were injured by Larry Nasser, but uh, we're, not, we're not legally responsible for him. Um, so we've gotten that addressed and changed. We made sure that one of the purposes of the corporation is to protect athletes from physical, emotional, and sexual abuse. We've gotten this new entity created, 2017, called United States Center for Safe Sport. Everybody should know about the center and the fact that it's got all these athlete, all these athletes, and but mostly coaches who are banned from the sport because they molested their athletes. Um, I actually just sent an email out today because one of those coaches was my coach in 1984. Mitch Ivey has been banned. He was molesting my teammate while I was there because my teammate, Suzette Moran, was six feet tall. People didn't look at her as the child that she was, and nobody protected her, including me. I did not protect her. Um, I was uh, 21 years old, got to be 22, but... Uh, but, uh, but anyway, Mitch Ivey has now been banned. He's, he, he, two of his wives have committed suicide. Um, bad guy. So he's been, he already has already been kicked out. Guess what? He's still part of the United States Olympians and Paralympians Association. So the alumni group, I got a list of here's who's in your group and he's still in it, right? So even though we got him out of coaching, either either we allow molesters into the there are olympic movements or we allow victims into our olympic movements because it's not going to be both and um so uh we need to make sure that we're giving everybody who's accused due process rights to make sure that they have an opportunity to be heard in front of a neutral arbitrator etc but after they're found to have, have committed sexual abuse is to get them out of sport. Um, it's trickier than you would yeah. think that it would be um, because what we don't want is for them just to go to the AAU or to go into the YMCA or go internationally, right? That's right. what happened, yeah, with a lot of coaches. They just go internationally. Wow. I mean, you are doing such big work. Like, yeah. your whole life now is dedicated towards helping people gain equal footing or more, you know, and it just, yeah. it says so much about who you are and the path you've been on. Um, I appreciate you so much and the work you're doing. And I just, I really, I hope at least there is something that is actionable for people to do after listening to this conversation. And that yeah. makes me, that makes me feel like we can make some progress. I need people to contact their representative and I need people to ask their representative to co-sponsor co -sponsor House, House Bill 
7881. I need them to co-sponsor 7881. It passed unanimously in the Senate. We've already been through numerous drafts. No changes to it. Let's get her done. Yeah, let's get her done. I love it. Well, okay, so we've been like rocking for a really long time. I mean, we could keep going definitely. I mean, I think we might have to do some follow-ups here. But, um, and I wish we could be doing all this in person because I just would love to sit in your energy here and, you know, be showered with strength and empowerment. Um, so let's wrap it. Let's wrap it today. And I think what we'll just do is go into the last question that I ask every guest who comes on the show. Okay. And that is, if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their world in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Okay. One piece of advice. Those are my COVID puppies. One piece of advice that would help people lead a bigger and better life is, um, is, um, is, um, I I want people to speak their truth and not have to worry that they're going to lose their community. That if they speak their truth, they might find a different community. Um, But, but um, you know, they might have found a different religious community or a different sports community or a different, uh, right. But to trust God and to just to trust that it will happen. You will find your other next community. And for you to, um, to be fully who you are in the world means, uh, to have a voice and that you matter and your experiences matter. And that's how we get change in the world. So perfect. <laughs> Nicole, I have a really, feeling- I, I'm so blessed to just, I don't know how we got connected. Um, but it's, you are nothing but sunshine and joy and empowerment and, and, you know, I, I always felt like you were cheering for whatever it was that I was doing. And um, thank you very much for having me on your show here. I really appreciate it. Right back at you. I, I am speaking with one of my childhood heroes and now one of my adult heroes. So thank you. You're amazing. You're so welcome. Right back at you. All right, you guys, I am back. I don't know about you, but I am feeling totally pumped. Here's what I want right now. I want to be in the flow state. I want to not do anything that'll interrupt the trajectory of my life. I want to help people who are being wronged. I want to speak my truth. I want to trust that whatever community is supposed to be there for me will be there for me no matter what happens. And on that note... Years ago, I started a Facebook group called the Run This World with Nicole DeBoom podcast group. I posted in it for a while, and then I got overwhelmed with all these groups and all this stuff, and I stopped, and you know what? I dusted it off the other day. I changed the name to just Run This World with Nicole DeBoom, and I decided that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some fun with community on there. So if you are still listening after this really long episode, hop over to your Facebook app and request to join the Run This World with Nicole DeBoom group. We will talk all things podcast, but probably a lot of more things too. That doesn't even make grammatical sense, but you got my drift. 
because as I said at the very beginning, I have no idea what I'm doing next, but I do know that I need community. I need strong, positive community surrounding me. So join the group. Let's hang out. All right, everybody, that's it for today. You know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.